0: Hey, good morning. I apologize I didn't have anything posted yesterday, but uh, uh, truth be told, sometimes Mondays tend to be kind of catch-up days for me on a number of things. I always try to set some time aside, but every now and then I just get a little wrapped up. So I apologize I didn't have something yesterday, but here it is Tuesday. I'm going to go ahead and answer a question that came in uh, from Mark and Robin, this in our comments section on our YouTube channel. And uh, the question has to do with the Kingdom Now theology. This is a good one. How would you differentiate between our being part of God's kingdom now <coughs> and not subscribing to a kingdom now theology? I know the kingdom now crowd uses this verse to claim Jesus taught us to declare his kingdom is now, and we are to be actively engaged in establishing it. Uh, the verse being uh, 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 Matthew six ten: your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, I understand the Daniel teaching and how it shows us the rock uncut by human hands, Jesus, that destroys all earthly kingdoms, and he will establish his kingdom when he returns. That from Daniel chapter 2. However, I find it challenging to help them see that this prayer is for that eventual kingdom to come. Uh, Along this line, how do you teach and explain through Scripture that while we are part of God's kingdom, it is not yet established in earth? When Jesus said the kingdom is here and similar things, I know those statements are used to defend the kingdom now perspective. Uh, I feel solid when I believe, yet I want uh, more apologetic tools and scriptures for discussion. Okay, well, that's that's a great question. That's a great idea to, to make sure that you have a good sense of, of how to respond to this idea. The kingdom now theology, or as it's variously known as um, kingdom dominion theology, um, uh, covenant people, Joel's army, these are different terms that are generally used um, in regard to uh, what the church should be and be known as, as we go about the business of, in key word, establishing Christ's kingdom here on earth uh, for him to come back and ultimately rule and reign. Now, it is significant that kingdom dominion theology has a number of things associated with it that also lend uh, themselves to some pretty specific criticisms in regard to this whole idea. Um, Some of those are things like, um, you know, because Christ lives in us and we have the spirit of Christ, therefore we have the same authority as Christ in all things. Uh, There's really nothing we should not be able to command and bring about in this world in the process of, again, establishing Christ's kingdom. Now, there are a number of fundamental flaws in this. Another one, by the way, in that same regard, is that there's a very uh, clear replacement theology element in kingdom now theology. The idea that the promises given to Israel are now inherited by the earth, uh, by the church, I should say, and it is now our job to establish this kingdom well that that's already flawed, um, and so the idea is that the kingdom is the church's kingdom the Christ's kingdom, but the church is the ultimate focus of it. That's not the case. The kingdom was first a promise to Israel and remains a promise to israel uh, and and we'll uh, We'll come back to that in just a moment, but let's start with some of the more basic Responses to this, again in Daniel chapter two. We'll just turn to it for those who are not so familiar. Just just for a minute, um, we'll read the, the pertinent passage here. In Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar uh, had a dream that he wanted his wise men to interpret for him. Now he not only wanted the interpretation of the dream, but in order to demonstrate, in order for them to prove themselves as actually being, um, you know divinely, you know, wise and that kind of thing, he told them that they needed to also tell him what the dream was and then interpret it. And then he would know that they actually had this ability and gift. Well, none of them could do it. And so word got to Daniel and his friends and, and they basically convinced the, uh, the headmaster to, um, you know, to, it's probably not the right term, but the leader of the guard and that, uh, under whose authority they were, um, to give them the night to fast and pray, or to pray at least. I guess I don't recall for sure if it was to fast as well. But they wanted the night to go ahead and seek the Lord about it. And um, uh, and then they would given uh, the answer. And so um, they were given that time, and Daniel goes before the king, uh, before Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him not only the interpretation, but prior to that, he gives God glory and says, God alone has the ability to to give and interpret dreams, and here's your dream, and he lays out the dream for him. And it involves this statue that that is um, presented as being made of various uh, decreasing value of metals, metals that are decreasing in value from head to toe, starting with a head of gold and ending with feet that are iron mixed with clay, toes iron mixed with clay, and then at the end of the dream, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw a rock cut without hands, and this is where I'll jump right back into the passage here. This is in Daniel chapter 2, um, uh, and uh, I'll go ahead and read the verse 43 and 40 uh, and on. And you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, and they will mingle with the seed of men, but they shall not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Uh, inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, Daniel gets a similar vision uh, later on in chapter 7 with different idioms, uh, instead of uh, valuable metals, precious metals, and that now that's uh, various creatures and beasts, and this kind of thing. But uh, essentially, the same message is being sent. Uh, one is generally seen as being taken from man's perspective Nebuchadnezzar's, the kingdoms being seen in glorious fashion. But in Daniel chapter 7, the kingdoms, these same kingdoms are seen from heaven's perspective. These are ravenous beasts that ultimately the Ancient of Days comes to establish his kingdom for the saints, and uh, the other kingdoms are, are are destroyed, and just like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So, um, but there, again, a key element here that that though it is not generally accepted by kingdom now people, it is because they don't understand. And I'm not trying to be rude or mean or even too terribly blunt about it, but I do want to be clear. Um, The passage says that God himself, like from outside entirely, notice the picture, a a, a rock cut without hands comes like out of nowhere, and it strikes at this this last dominion, this last kingdom empire uh, on the earth and brings down all of the kingdoms. In other words, this last kingdom is sort of a culmination of all the previous ones at least in ambition and desire, if not some substance. Um, But certainly in terms of the ambition of being a global empire, well, the last one, which we understand, and this is a whole other study, but we understand to be a revived Roman Empire, ultimately that empire is crushed, destroyed, and all of these aspirations of, of all of these global dominions that have gone on, all of this comes to an end, a complete catastrophic end, as the kingdom that is brought about by God himself Ultimately, comes and strikes. It is significant that this this rock cut without hands doesn't come up out of the earth. It doesn't come as the result of anybody's efforts. It comes from outside, and it deals with this last kingdom. Um, the fact that, or the idea that we would assume this means our building it, is completely absent from any implication or in any anything at all, implicit or explicit in the passage. There is nothing in the passage that would lead anyone to believe that this is coming from anywhere but God Himself and uh, uh, doing this. And so, and it is even said, the God of this world will establish this, uh, the God uh, of heaven will establish this kingdom. So, even though those in the Kingdom Now camp um, don't understand the passage, it is still a very, very important one to point out and to emphasize. I would not back away from it just because they don't get it, I would help them to get it. Um, and so this is a key passage in understanding this truth. Now some other things to talk about um, in in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. again, we read this, uh, we've read this many times, we've quoted it many times, "Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. During the time when Jesus was on the earth, he invited his followers to pray this. At the same time, not in the same breath, but in in various places throughout his ministry, he also spoke about how the kingdom of, of heaven was in our midst. Uh, some translations say within us, but the idea here, even though there may be some discussion as to whether Jesus spoke about it sort of existing within within believers uh, in some sense, or whether it be something that is, um, that is uh, a present idea among believers in that, it can become somewhat semantical, I guess. People make a pretty big argument about that. But in either case... I would say that Jesus invited his followers at that time to be praying that the kingdom would come, while at the same time saying that in some sense, it was already among them. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, for a kingdom now person, that becomes somewhat problematic. Um, For a non-kingdom now person, it can be sort of okay for both in a way, but but for a kingdom now person who believes that our job is to establish the kingdom— Uh, Jesus invites us to ask that kingdom to come. Lord, please let your kingdom come. The implication among Kingdom Now people is that we are the instrument through which God does this. Uh, I would suggest, again, from the passage in Daniel, that is not what happens. Not only that, but if we consider the passage in Daniel 2... Along with the passage in Revelation 19, um, the you know Daniel is sort of the apocalyptic Revelation literature of the Old Testament. Well, let's look at the one in the New Testament that bears the actual name of the Revelation, and in a particular, chapter 19. In chapter 19, we see uh, the return of Christ on a white horse and the armies of heaven with him. Let's read the passage starting in verse 11. Now, I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, this the armies in heaven here are generally seen as a combination of both the angels that come with him, but also the saints, uh, as referenced in Jude, chapter, was on one chapter in Jude, but Jude verses 14 and 15, and also in places like Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, where it speaks about when the Lord comes in glory, we shall come with him. And so the idea is that this is now the return of Christ with the saints, with the angels and the armies of heaven. But notice what's going on here, even though we're all with him, verse 14. Uh, Or verse fifteen. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven. Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all the people, uh, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. When the, then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now I'm going to read into chapter 20 here as well because there's a point I want to get to here. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little time. This comes after the millennium then. What was described leads up to the millennial kingdom that we'll now read about. But his release, as just mentioned, will come after the millennium. Then I saw thrones, verse 4, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads. Or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now a couple of things come up here. First of all, notice the very dramatic um, entrance of Christ vanquishing all of his foes. There's no mention of the armies of heaven fighting with him, having any real effect or impact. We're just sort of there to watch, uh, at, or at least it would appear. There's there's no mention of our engaging in the battle. There's no mention of the angels coming and wiping them out. There is instead mention of Christ and simply by the word of his mouth, putting down all of those who have stood against him at his coming. This is why in Psalm 2 it speaks about him who sits in the heaven laughing at the absurdity of the nations gathering and raging against Christ and his coming. Um, and so not only that, but when it comes to even the Antichrist and the false prophet, Christ himself vanishes vanquishes them and casts them into the lake of fire. They don't even go to the judgment seat. They just go directly into hell. And so there does not appear to be anything about Jesus returning to a kingdom that has been established and waiting for him. There does not even appear to be any element at which we're helping him win this battle. He just takes care of business. Um, this is, by the way, the fulfilling, and, and of course, as it goes on to describe the establishing of that kingdom, this millennial kingdom now comes on the heels of his return. He establishes it. This is the rock cut without hands, ultimately uh, the God himself establishing the this kingdom. Notice also that there is mention of those who did not take the mark of the beast and paid with their lives during the tribulation period, those who were beheaded for the lamb and for his testimony. Um, There does not appear to be in the moments leading up to Christ's return, any indication that the kingdom has been established for him to return to. Instead, what we see in the book of Revelation, and what we seriously see described any time this period of time is described, is a time of God's judgment on the earth, of of Him taking care of business during this tribulation period, the first three and a half years under this you know, man-made utopian sort of uh, world under the Antichrist, but then ultimately as he begins to um, um, bring persecution upon the Jews and upon uh, those who won't uh, take his mark in that, we begin to see these judgments of God coming upon the earth. Uh, By the way, just as a Insertion here. I believe that the wrath of God starts particularly when Christ breaks the seal and allows the Antichrist then to go forth and conquer in his seeming peaceful fashion. We see the far greater judgments coming in the uh, in the trumpets and the bowls and all this kind of thing. Um, but I would argue that the actual wrath begins at the very beginning of this tribulation period, the beginning of the seven years. But when we see this period of time described, we don't get the impression this is any kind of a kingdom of God being established. It's a kingdom of Antichrist being established and then thrown down. So there's no point during this entire thing where we see anything, and and again, this is not just revelation, but in Daniel, we don't get any indication. Uh, In any other place that we see uh, the time leading up to the establishing of the kingdom, there's never a sense given That the church is somehow triumphant in this age and bringing about the kingdom of God and then Jesus will come and rule and reign over it. Um, It is exactly the opposite. Um, It is a time of, uh, of, of terrible wickedness and deception. Uh, Matthew 24 there's you know which I believe is speaking to Israel I don't think the church is present in that passage at all um, but um, during that time as Jesus describes it it is not seen as a time where there is any establishing of kingdoms it's a time of again tremendous deception Jesus mentions false Christ and such a number of times in that passage um, there is a uh, speak of the Jews fleeing during that time it's it's there's there's no biblical reason to believe uh that from the text itself that we have any part in establishing the kingdom now how do you reconcile that with the idea of jesus saying the kingdom's in your midst well i don't think that's difficult at all because the truth of the matter is is that the kingdom of god is comprised of his subjects those who are subject to him Uh, that does resonate within believers that is true of believers But that's different than establishing his kingdom. We are subjects of his kingdom. Paul would even go as far as to say we're ambassadors of that kingdom on a search and rescue mission, calling out for people to be reconciled to God. And so there's no biblical problem with understanding what I just described. There's a massive biblical problem with trying to embrace an ideal kingdom now theology. It's something that uh, is built upon the idea that we should be able to be conquerors and overcomers, as the term is often used in this uh, in this camp in this discussion, that, you know, we therefore are going to have victory in the world because we're coming in the name of Christ and all this. The reason why that view is held is often contingent upon a spiritualizing, metaphorizing, that's not a word, but um, seeing the scriptures metaphorically or allegorically or symbolically when it comes to prophetic things. Um, in the Kingdom Now camp, there is generally not held that there's going to be a rapture. I say generally because there are those that embrace some elements of Kingdom Now theology but also um, hold uh, you know a more traditional biblical view of eschatology involving things like the rapture it's not always a lockstep proposition when it comes to people in uh, the kingdom now uh, camp and, and in particular, the New Apostolic Reformation embraces pretty significant swaths of this idea. But some of them also hold the idea of the rapture in that as well, and so it's you just have to know what the person you're talking to thinks on these things. but I would say that when you when the scripture is when the entirety of scripture is your guide in understanding this, and not just particularly carefully selected passages that help build a different case, but you look at the scriptures in whole in its context. Um, the argument of of the church establishing a kingdom is uh, is just not um, not there, not there. It's just it's something that the Lord Himself brings, which leads me to one final point that I would like to make up here. Um, I mentioned earlier on, uh, and this is a, in my view, a, an enormously significant point, and that is that there is a there's a a very significant replacement theology at the heart of. Uh, kingdom now theology. Again, when the emphasis is on the church establishing the kingdom so that Christ can return, uh, there is oftentimes, um, well, I wouldn't say oftentimes, there necessarily comes with that then the idea that the kingdom is about us establishing it for Jesus rather than Jesus delivering the kingdom to Israel as promised. The um, Replacement theology is pernicious. It's damnable heresy. It is responsible for some of the most atrocious, um, uh, horrific crimes against God's chosen people, the apple of his eye, even at the hands of the church. Uh, And so I I very, very firmly, vociferously, and vocally stand against the idea of of replacement theology. Uh, It is possible for the church and Israel to exist uh mutually exclusively but yet be part of together the f- the final fulfilling of God's plans for his kingdom on the earth uh, in fact, the church does rule and reign with Christ. Again, the two groups that are mentioned in Revelation 19 and 20, there is the group that came with Christ that sits on thrones and rules and reigns. And there is also those who are persecuted and, and, and died during the tribulation period who also will then rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So there, uh, and, and, and by and large, many of those who ultimately are persecuted and killed for their faith during the tribulation period, many of those are Israel. Uh, those who are persecuted by Antichrist and chased off into the wilderness, as we see in Revelation 12. Uh, not all of them. Gentiles will come to Christ during that time, too. But we will see a large swath of, of Jews, um, uh, a remnant, if Zechariah 13 is to be understood this way. The idea of that a remnant ultimately enters into the kingdom, uh, the millennium in that. But, um, but the idea of replacing Israel is something the Bible knows nothing about. And I'm I'm not gonna back on that, back down on that. That is a biblical truth. The Bible knows nothing of the church being replaced or the Israel being replaced by the church. As a matter of fact, here's a key passage to this regard that that in my mind ends the argument. I'm not sure how we read this, but 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 don't understand it for what it says. Um in Romans chapter eleven, Romans uh nine through eleven is a passage that is often feared by believers because it deals heavily on the idea of the sovereignty of God. Um, But it does so within the context of describing God's relationship with Israel. I think those two ideas can be described independently, but in in Romans chapter 11, Paul combines these ideas to teach something significant about both of those concepts. Uh, and here in particular, he's speaking of national ethnic Israel when he says in verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It is very, very clear that he is drawing a distinction between national, ethnic Hebrew Israel descendants, physically of Abraham, uh, not you know not the church grafted into the vine. He talks about this in this in chapters nine through eleven as well. That is true, but here he's making a very clear distinction, and he is referring specifically to Israel. They are blind to the truth until the Gentiles come in, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. In other words, until that last Gentile in the age of grace comes to faith, and ultimately that ends that period of time of Israel's blindness, and they once again become the focal uh, centerpiece of God's uh, last days prophetic, you know, fulfillment in that. But he goes on, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. Now, you could, based on all that Paul has talked about here, talk about Israel in terms of both ethnically and also spiritually, those Gentiles who've been grafted into the vine, um, those who, by the same faith as Abraham, are saved, right? But there is still, even in that statement here, in verse 26, Israel doesn't just mean those grafted into the vine, those spiritually who are Israel. He just mentioned national Israel being blinded for a period of time and being and therefore verse twenty six would imply that they are part of the all of Israel that is being spoken of. If not, the other interpretation of that is that when he says all Israel will be saved, that means that all believing Jews specifically will be saved. Either of those interpretations have some merit, um, but in either case, in both cases, national ethnic Israel is clearly in view, at least in part. Um, so again, verse twenty-six. So all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And or ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Again, the reference to Zion, the reference to Jacob, the deliverer that they have been waiting for and is uh, is is going to come. Uh, now, verse twenty-eight concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Who spiritual Israel? Those grafted into the vine. No, they are grafted into the vine because they believe the gospel. He's talking about national, ethnic, unbelieving Israel. Okay? They're enemies for your sake because of the gospel. But concerning election, this is one of the great places where these two ideas of election in general, but also election in regard to Israel, come together. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for... And here it is. Listen to this and let it sink deeply into your understanding of Israel in terms of end times eschatology. They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, God goes to lengths to describe his love and his commitment and covenant with national, ethnic, Israel. And he makes promises to Abraham and his descendants physically. Now, of course, we understand that also extends spiritually to those who with the same faith as Abraham come to believe, right? But he is talking about national ethnic Israel. And he says the promises, Paul says, the promises that God made to them are irrevocable. Why? Because God made that promise unilaterally, based on his own faithfulness, not the faithfulness of his unfaithful people. Therefore, to say that the church has replaced Israel is heresy. It is unbiblical. I mean, heresy... I I don't want to just use that word, but I have to say, I feel personally... I am very strongly opposed to the idea of replacement theology because it for a number of reasons it puts the blame on Israel for christ's crucifixion and all that when you and I are just as responsible for it because of our unbelief. Jesus came not just because and was crucified not just because of them but because of our sin it It causes us to Misinterprets so much of Scripture as relates to Israel, both in terms of her history and in terms of her destiny. Um, And it puts it; it causes us to misunderstand the Bible and to appropriate things to ourselves that are not intended for us. And it also, on top of that, and much more could be said on this. And to this, I would recommend uh, reading. uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's work on uh, the, uh, on Israelology, I have it over there on my shelf, I've held it up before, but you can find it, Israelology by, uh, by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. It's a, it's a premier work on this subject, where it discusses the different eschatological views as relate to Israel. Uh, and, and, uh, um, but it, it also calls out the errors and mistakes that come when you put the church in the place of Israel. Um, you your entire eschatology gets completely screwed up when you put the church in the place of Israel. Um, so if someone embraces a kingdom now theology, chances are they are doing so a very strong chance they're they doing so uh, uh, in part in concert with the idea of replacing of the church, replacing Israel, being part of this idea of replacement theology. So, I wanted to make sure I included all of that for a very uh, for what I think is a uh, an important reason. Um, it's important that we be able to call out scriptures, to be able to to turn to our Bibles and, and demonstrate um, these ideas, the 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 merits of them or the lack of merit of them, um, to teach correctly in in regard to these theologies and that. But it's also important. I would say equally as important to not just have a Bible verse to bring out, but to have a a larger comprehensive view of the why and the ins and outs of the theology itself. Um, It can just be tit for tat on Bible verses back and forth. And if they end up just remembering a few more than you do, it sounds like their view is right and yours is wrong. Have as many in your back pocket as you can in this regard, but also understand how they synthesize into a perspective, into a, into a, you know, uh, uh, an element of theology that is, um, that is able to be expressed in more than just saying a Bible verse. It's not a competition of Bible verses. It is a matter of understanding the fuller theology of it. Uh, Kingdom now theology is a false theology. It is a misguided theology that has misled many many people. And has affected them in far more ways than just eschatology. There's also, in that whole thing, a whole problem with the whole idea of prophets and apostles and modern-day prophets and apostles that speak authoritatively. In that, well, the things that they're saying, quote unquote, authoritatively, are standing as we've already hopefully demonstrated to some degree, uh, albeit you know indirectly, um, are speaking are are they're saying things that are that contradict the clear teaching of Scripture. Uh, in, in a number of ways, and so this is not just like a peripheral theology; this is a dangerous theology and I would say that you would do well to help your friend uh, or anyone you know that uh, that is in this theology to 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 not um, to not remain in it but to rather become a far more um, consistent student of scripture and i don 't say that in an insulting way i don 't mean to sound belittling in that regard. Um, but this is one of those topics that we should understand far better than we typically do, because it is something that is being embraced by more and more people. Uh, again, the New Apostolic Reformation is one of those movements that in 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 many respects adopts significant parts of this theology and does so um, to the damage of those who follow them. And so uh, I, th- I think this is an important one, so I want to make sure we addressed it today. I hope that helps uh, Mark and Robin a little bit. Um, if there are more specific questions that any of you might have on that topic, I'm glad to do my best to try and answer those for you. If you like, you can share them in our comment section. Uh, You can email me at info at Calvarychapelfranklin.com. And, um, uh, speaking of Romans nine through 11, we, a couple months ago now, I think was the last time we were actually in Romans and we ended up a few verses into Romans nine. We are about to step into what is one of the most, um, uh, one of the biggest reasons why people fear Romans nine through 11. Uh, and, uh, and so, but we're going to come at it head on and, uh, and, and begin to address that again in, in the coming days. i I might even be tomorrow or the next day. I, I really don't want to be away from it as long as we've been, but, um, just, uh, I find myself answering questions and the holidays and those kinds of things. So I, I just want to make sure we get back to it. So I'm going to plan to do that, uh, in the next uh, couple of days, hopefully God willing. So, all right. Well, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And, uh, And may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you and give you peace forever. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to be students of theology. This isn't just something for pastors, not just something for prophecy nerds and that kind of thing, but rather instead this is something all believers should endeavor to undertake, an understanding of our faith, being able to understand it well enough to where ideas that sound similar but actually are quite different— uh, can be distinguished and can be biblically discerned, and and uh, and can be spoken to. Uh, in doing so, like Timothy, uh, like uh, Paul told Timothy, you know, and uh, pour yourself into the doctrine and such, and and uh, and and be faithful to it. For in doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Uh, and so, Father, we want to be wise in terms of our theology that we might spare others the anguish of having gone down roads that lead to, oftentimes, frankly, shipwreck. And so. Just pray that, uh, Father, we would do so with with kindness and gentleness and respect and love at the heart of it, that uh, all of our words be seasoned with grace, that, uh, Father, we would um, recognize that um, there's no room for arrogance here, but rather instead we just want to make sure that we understand our theology and can help others to understand it as well uh, for their own benefit and ultimately most of all for your glory. So thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.